Hey, it's good to see you tonight. I'm so glad that you're here, and I trust that you've had a wonderful week. If you happen to be a guest with us tonight, we want to welcome you. <clears throat> We're so glad that you're here. Aren't you grateful we can come together in the middle of the week? And uh, man, what a difference just a few days makes. Someone said if you don't like the weather in North Carolina, just wait for a couple days, and you know, you'll run the gamut of all four seasons in just three days. But uh, I'm so glad we can be here. Um, if you have a Bible tonight, I want you to take it and turn to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, and I'll read from this in just a moment. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 4, we are in a study well, simply called 52 Weeks in the Word, and we've taken our Wednesday nights and sort of just, uh, it's serving as a, just sort of an encouragement, teaching time. But to sort of correspond with our reading plan, reading through the Bible that we've been promoting for 2024. And I'm, I know many of you are following along in that reading plan. And so if you, are, if you began you know, January 1, uh, reading the uh, 52 weeks in the Word reading plan, uh, you began in Genesis. Well, now you know that several weeks into this new year, we are halfway through the book of Exodus. And so... Um, one of the things that I wanted to do uh, just periodically on Wednesday nights as I'm following along in that reading plan is to just sort of give you a big picture overview of where you perhaps may be if you are following along in that particular plan. And even if you're not, this is still something that I believe would be beneficial to you. You know, because when we read the Bible, uh, one thing we've kept coming back to is that we want to understand the big picture. And we want to see how it ultimately points us to Jesus. And so we read uh, the scriptures uh, with sort of this gospel-centered understanding that this is to point me to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I gave you just that simple little, I don't know, is it acronym? Is that the word I'm looking for? Just take that word flight. And if you use that word flight and you think about the F standing for facts, what are some important facts that we need to keep in mind as we read through this particular passage of Scripture or this book of the Bible? What are some important landmarks? Uh, what's the itinerary? Uh, G is gospel. How might this book uh, point me to the hope that I have in the gospel? Where might Moses have written uh, about Christ as we read through the book of Exodus? Where might we find Christ? Because Jesus himself said that Moses and the prophets testified of him. And so we've got to keep that understanding as we read through these first five books of Moses. H is history. What's the history behind this particular Bible book? And then T, travel tips. What are some helpful travel tips? Now, again, this is not, I didn't come up with this, but I, this was really helpful when I came across it some time back. And any good study Bible, if you've got a study Bible, should give you a good introduction and overview of that particular book of the Bible. And many of, this, uh, of these points will be brought up by the, by the authors of that particular study Bible. Okay, so as far as Exodus is concerned, what are the facts? We know Jesus stated that the book of Exodus was written by Moses. It's the second book in the Torah and was probably written shortly after Genesis, perhaps somewhere between 1445 and 1405 B.C. And so those are the facts. What are some important landmarks? Uh, 
Well, if you think about it, uh, the book of Exodus really has two major themes that emerge. And the first one being that of redemption. I mean, haven't you just read with just such intrigue and, and humility and wonder as God rescues his people from their bondage to Pharaoh there in Egypt? God delivers his people from their slavery in an act of grace. Israel has been in Egypt for 430 years at this point, And they've grown to be a great nation. And God, through mighty acts of deliverance, rescues and redeems his people from bondage. And he uh, has Moses lead the Israelites to Mount Sinai. Once you get to Exodus chapters 18, 19, and 20, there you have the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. And so the second major theme that emerges is that of identification. Whereas God has identified with his people through redemption, I've redeemed you, I've bought you with a price, you're mine. And now his people are identifying with him as far as the, the covenant uh, is concerned, the law. And then later chapters in Exodus, you've got great detail that goes into all of the instructions that, that God gives Moses for the building of the tabernacle. Isn't it amazing when you think about it? All of those chapters in Exodus that deal with all of these intricate details as far as the tabernacle is concerned. And then Genesis, all that it has to say about the stars, he made the stars also. That's the only thing the Bible has to say about the creation of the stars. But you've got all these chapters devoted to the tabernacle. And I'm sitting here wondering, Lord, could you give us just a little bit more about the stars? But it really just reminds you that as far as God is concerned, the stars are not what's important. It's the souls of people. Amen. It's Amen. redemption. And the tabernacle is all about salvation. And that's what's near and dear to the heart of God. Jesus said that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents and comes to faith. And so you want to know what God's really concerned about? Well, it's redemption. So those are some major landmarks. And then I, the itinerary. In other words, here's a good helpful outline. Preachers, we like outlines. <laughs> I have to have an outline. Kind of helps me follow and process material. And so here's a good outline for the book of Exodus. The first 12 chapters have to do with domination. You can write that word down, domination. The Israelites are in bondage to Pharaoh. They're being dominated, cruelly oppressed by the Egyptians. Uh, chapters 13 through 18, the word liberation. Remember, it's through various plagues of judgment, and then the final plague being that of the death of the firstborn and the Passover. God liberates his people from their bondage and their domination there in Egypt, and he does so through great acts of judgment, but never forget the fact that the Passover lamb is so very, very important. So much so that God gives Moses instructions to tell the people this needs to be an observance perpetually. Every generation from now needs to remember this because it's pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. A third word in this outline would be revelation. All right, that's chapters 19 through 31. So domination, that's the first 12 chapters. Liberation, that's chapter 13 through 18. Revelation, this has to do with God giving his law to his people. And pay close attention to the fact that redemption comes before the giving of the law. So that God never gave his law with the intention that his people keep it in order to secure their salvation and redemption. Right? 
And Moses, uh, Paul brings this up in Romans when he is making the point that law has never been able to save anybody. The law can only take you so far. Which, by the way, I think we've got a very vivid illustration of this later on when Moses is able to come to the borders of the promised land, but Moses can't lead the people into the promised land. You know who they need? They need Joshua or Yeshua. Wow, you ever thought about that? Now you say, well, why did Moses not get to lead the people into the promised land? Well, he disobeys God, but I do think that there's a principle that's being reinforced and laid down. Law can only get you so far. Law can show you your need of the Savior, but it can't save you. Law convicts me of my sin. Law reveals, me, reveals to me the righteous standard of God, but it can't provide the righteousness of God. For that, I need Christ. And so then the fourth word in this little outline for Exodus would be identification. Chapters 32 through 40. And by the way, keep in mind, God didn't redeem or rescue the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt because they were such wonderful, obedient people. <laughs> because as Moses is there on the mountain receiving the law from God, the people are like, you know, this Moses guy, we don't know what he's doing. He's forgotten about us. So Aaron, you make us gods that we can worship. And so Moses comes down from the mountain and he's only been gone, you know, what, 40 days and 40 nights and the people are engaged in idolatry at the base of the mountain. And so you've got just this very messy story of, of the people's disobedience and yet God doesn't annihilate them. Moses intercedes for them. But the remaining chapters of Exodus 32 through 40, the emphasis there is the identification of God's people. These are my people. I want to dwell among you and tabernacle among you. And so that's why there's so much emphasis given on the tabernacle there. Okay, so that's the itinerary. As far as the gospel is concerned, I mean, I've already hit on that. Um, the Passover lamb points me to the Lord Jesus Christ. The writers of the New Testament pick up on this time and time again. John 1.29, John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The tabernacle is such a wonderful picture and type or pattern of heavenly realities fulfilled in Christ himself. Jesus is our great high priest, our mediator, who made it possible for us to have fellowship with God the Father. And so on and on and on we see shadows of Christ and the gospel in the book of Exodus. Again, the history of it, it spans roughly a 40-year time frame from the very opening verses of chapter 1 to the close of the book. And again, most of that uh, is, is um, a very brief period of time, but the 40-year time frame is really the life of Moses. Um, you know, you think about how it's an amazing thing that God calls him to Egypt after he's 80 years old. <laughs> Someone says, well, I'm not serving the Lord. God didn't really begin to use Moses until he was 80. And so don't think that just because you say, I'm not young, there's nothing I can do for God. You know, it's you know, younger men, younger women, they're needed. Listen, we need some saints of God who know how to pray in the church, who know how to serve. And Moses, his effective ministry was in those later years of his life. So some travel tips. Let me give you three tips as you read Exodus. Okay, you need to recognize your personal need for deliverance, number one. You ought to be reminded of the fact that I, I need deliverance. 
sin is my problem and I need to be delivered. And then the second point is you need to recognize that Jesus is the deliverer. And so in that way, Exodus points me to the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And then a third travel tip, uh, maybe resolve to spend more time with the God who loves you and saved you. Resolve to spend time with him as a worshiper. And the fact that the tabernacle is constructed the way that it is, it just points to the fact that God desires to dwell among his people. And so you've been saved for that purpose. And so now we know that the, the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in a physical building made with hands, but because of the finished work of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are the temple of the living God Amen. who's come to take up residence within our own hearts and lives. And so spend time with him. Isn't it a wonderful thing that you can spend time with God day by day? You can know him in a personal relationship, and so I'm very, very thankful for that. All right, well, that's that. Now, I had you turn to Deuteronomy. You remember last week I sort of uh, concluded with some answers, some questions that I sort of presupposed. And, and really what we want to do on Wednesday nights <clears throat> over the next several weeks is just try to address some of these key questions about the Bible so that you have great confidence that when you open the Bible and you read, you are indeed reading the Word of God. So that it's not just simply an ordinary book, but this is the very Word of God. And so there are some objections that skeptics have had over the years. There are some questions that are often raised. And so it's important, I think, for us to really be equipped uh, to be able to address some of these questions that maybe a skeptic might want to raise. Say you have someone that you're witnessing to, and they, they, they bring up this argument, well, you know that the church came up with the Bible. The church determined which books were to be in the Bible. And so someone says, well, how do you deal with that? As a Christian, how might you be able to defend your faith? And so if you don't think that that kind of thing is happening, it's happening a lot. You know, um, our kids go to college and they're immediately confronted with questions by various professors that may want to pick apart their Christianity and they may have never really considered some of these issues and so they get to the college campus and so they're just, they're blown away by some of the skeptical um, uh, issues that are raised by unbelievers. And so that's why I think in this 21st century world that is increasingly post-Christian and skeptical toward the faith, uh, apologetics is, is a very helpful field of study for the church. You say, what do you mean apologetics? Well, that just simply means defending the faith. Being able to defend the faith. We're not arguing people into the kingdom of God. That's not what apologetics means. But it's just simply you and me as believers being equipped to share our faith and then defend the faith from all attack. And so you remember the enemy in the Garden of Eden, the very, the very first thing that the enemy does is he tries to get men and women to question the word of God. He, he tells Eve, did God really say? Casting doubt on the truthfulness and the goodness of God and his word. And so we need to be prepared because the enemy is still doing that, by the way. With every generation, there seems to be a different attack on 
the, the, the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, as Jonathan mentioned, the sufficiency of Scripture. And, and oftentimes it's the same old arguments that get repackaged and, and, and maybe called a different name, but they come back around. The devil has just a few tricks up his sleeve, but he just keeps pulling out those same tricks with every passing generation. All right, so those are some of the questions. Now, we dealt with the issue of, of inspiration, and so tonight, there on your study sheet, you'll notice I want to deal with what's called the canonicity of Scripture. You think, what in the world is that? What does that word mean, canonicity? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. All right, canonicity. But before I do that, let's go all the way back in our minds to 1843. In 1843, there was a young German scholar. His name was Konstantin Tichendorf. That's, I like that name, Konstantin Tichendorf. But evidently, he got really tired of studying uh, old texts in the musty libraries of Europe. And so he packed up his bags and he went out on a journey in which he made it his goal to discover and to decipher the oldest surviving copies of Scripture. And so you might think of Tichendorf as the original Indiana Jones. Think of him as a scholar type, but he's got sort of this... Uh, this, this, this travel bug in him, and he just wants to travel the world to search for these ancient texts. Well, in 1844, uh, Constantine Tichendorf arrives at St. Catherine's Monastery, which is situated at the base of the traditional site of Mount Sinai. So that while he was there, he makes a remarkable discovery there in this monastery. I think I've got another picture of it to just give you the perspective of the looming traditional Mount Sinai behind this monastery that's been there for many hundreds of years. Well, the monks in this particular monastery, in their library, and there's sort of a picture of the library, they had in their possession a 1,500-year-old Greek version of the Bible known as the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was just the Greek translation of the the Scriptures, both the Old Testament Scriptures as well as the New Testament that was contained in this particular copy. And so the scholars now refer to this discovery as Codex Sinaiticus. (laughs) Say that ten times fast. But it was one of the most remarkable discoveries in history. And this ancient manuscript is very, very prized because it helps scholars see how ancient scribes labored meticulously in order to preserve the correct wording of the biblical text down through the centuries. And I've got a picture of this particular Codex Sinaiticus. It's now housed at the British Museum, uh, and it is the oldest complete Bible in the world. And so it's really remarkable. You'll notice it's got four different columns per page there. And uh, again, it is the Greek translation of the scriptures, both the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures as well as the New Testament. Now it's remarkable that 3,000 years before Constantine Tichendorf, another man made multiple trips up and down that mountain that was right there just in the distance behind that monastery where he received direct revelation from God and he was commanded to write it all down in a book. And of course that man was Moses. Exodus 24 verse 4 says, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. 
And so tonight, I want to introduce this subject known as the canonicity of Scripture, which looks to this question that we raised last week. Okay, here's the question. How do we know that we have all of the right books? We know the Bible is one book. It's made up of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different human authors. How do we know that we have the right books? Well, if you've ever wondered that, if you've ever asked that question, then that's a question of canonicity, and that's what we're going to look at. All right, so I had you go to Deuteronomy. I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and look at what Moses is clearly told. Deuteronomy 4, verse number 1. The Bible says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So here, here Israel is told, don't add to it, don't take away from it. You're not free to just pick and choose and do whatever you want to with the words of this law. That's what they're being told there. By the way, doesn't that sound a lot like Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19? You know, the very uh, last uh, couple of verses in uh, the biblical Revelation, uh, there's this warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. So you don't tamper with God's word. That's, that's what's clearly said there in Deuteronomy 4 as well as Revelation 22. All right, now I want you to skip over just a few more chapters. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 46. Actually, if you go back up to verse 44, it sort of helps you a little bit contextually. But verse 44, Moses came and recited all of the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all of Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, uh, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Now, do you hear that? Did you, did you see that there? Do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but it's your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. So you can underline that phrase there in verse 46, all the words. First part of the verse as well as the last part of the verse. Be careful to do all the words of this law. Now here's the question. How do we know that we have all the words? All the books. How do we know that? Well, that is an issue of canonicity. Okay? Canonicity. Now... There's a picture of a chain here. In fact, I had Steve McDaniel hunt down a chain a little while ago that we had on campus. And uh, that's a pretty tough chain, isn't it? You think about a chain. You know that really a a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Uh, Say, for example, if you had one of these uh, links in this chain, say it's been sawed and, you know, it looks like it's strong. You know, I could be like one of those strong men and pretend that I can tear the chain, but if it's got, 
you know, just barely held together there. You may not be able to see it from where you're seating, but it's really weak, and that chain is no stronger than its weakest link. Well, think about the way that God's communicated to humanity as that of a chain. And there are various links in this particular chain of communication by which God has communicated to us. And let me tell you, they're all equally strong links. There is no weak link in the chain of God's communication to humanity. Link number one has to do with revelation. And we considered that from Psalm 19 over the last couple of weeks. God has revealed himself in a general way. And he's revealed himself in a very specific way through his word. God's given special revelation in the person of his son. Uh, You and I are given the witness of the scriptures. So that we could say that the second link in this particular chain of communication is inspiration. Inspiration. Uh, The key verse for this, obviously, is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The Bible says all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's given by inspiration of God. Theonoustos there. Uh, It means, literally, God breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. I heard it explained this way. Uh, Teaching, that's what's right. God's Word is good for what's right. What's true? Reproof, that's what's not right. God's word will keep you out of the ditch, right? Uh, Correction, that's how to get right. So God's word tells me what's right. God's word tells me what's not right. And God's word tells me how to get right. And then training in righteousness, well, that's how to stay right. (laughs) So that God's word is good for Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why? Because it's given by inspiration of God. God breathed. Another verse would be 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and verse 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man... But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so that's inspiration. That's the second link. All right, the third link, and this is is relevant to our study tonight, it's canonization or canonicity. What do we mean when we refer to the canon of Scripture? The canon of Scripture. Well, the canon of Scripture is the list of all of the books that belong in the Bible. The list of those books uh, that are recognized as those worthy to be included in both Old and New Testament. Okay? So there in your notes, that word canon comes from this, from the ancient world, and it basically means rule or standard. Now don't think of canon in the terms of, you know, what pirates had on their ships. You know, or what the north and the south fired at each other on, you know, the various battlefields. No, we're talking about a Greek word, canon, uh, that basically means measuring rule, a, a standard of measurement. We would call it a ruler, okay? A standard. And so it, it, in, in the ancient world, it referred to a reed that was used to measure things, much in the same way that you would use a tape measure or a ruler in our own time. All right, so don't, 
Don't minimize the importance of this because the words of Scripture are the words by which we nourish our spiritual lives. And so when you open up your Bible, you see the various books of the Bible. You and I can be confident that not only has God inspired every word in his word, but God has also given to us the very books that he intended to give so that we're not lacking in in sufficient revelation from God. Hence the emphasis on that passage, that passage from Deuteronomy, all the words. So that supernaturally God has worked in this way over history, over time. He's given us all the words. He's given us all the books that make up the word of God. And that's something that you and I can be very confident in. Okay? So this is a very crucial issue. You say, well, why is that? Well, I'll tell you why. If we are to trust and obey God absolutely, then you and I need to have a collection of words that we are certain are God's own words to us. If there are any sections of Scripture about which we have doubts whether or not these are God's words, then we won't consider them to have absolute authority, and we won't trust them as much. Which, by the way, that's why I'm just going to go ahead and say this, where we've seen the slide into liberalism over the years, it always begins with sort of the denial of the inerrancy of Scripture, which then leads to this loss of confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. And ultimately, what we're witnessing now is the wholesale abandonment of the authority of Scripture in our own time. I mean, you've got entire denominations now that are fighting at their national conventions and they're split right down the middle over issues that are clear in Scripture and clear for those who have an understanding of the authority, the sufficiency, the inerrancy, the inspiration of the Bible. So that word canonization, this really tells us how the Bible received its acceptance as the people of God recognized the authority of these God-inspired writings from the prophets as well as the apostles. All right, so generally defined, that word canon refers to the authoritative list of books accepted as Holy Scripture. Okay? Now, that takes us through the introduction. All right, so, huge question. Who decided that these 66 books are the Word of God, Pastor? Pastor? Because if people are going to criticize us at various points of our faith, then they're going to try to pick apart the Bible, and they're going to try to argue that it was really the church that determined the books of the Bible. How might we counter that? What, does, what do we really learn from history? Which, by the way, now that people have access to Google, they can know just enough to be dangerous. Okay? And so, um, we'll, we'll look at this. So let me give you just four key points here. Beginning with point number one, the books of the Bible were inspired by God's Spirit and discerned by God's people. All right, don't think that the church got together one night, you know, at a pizza party and, and said, hey, we got to figure out what books we need to come up with and call it our Bible. That did not happen. <laughs> That's not the way that God's Word has been given to us. It's not that the church determines the canon. In fact, the opposite's true. It's the canon that determines the church. Because we're talking about the supernatural work of God here. 
The church is not the master of the canon, but the servant. The church doesn't regulate the canon. It simply recognizes it. And, and so this inevitably will often bring up a point, especially between Catholics and Protestants, because, uh, you know, a Protestant, in fact, I was having lunch with somebody today. We were talking about this very issue. And, you know, the Catholic Bible has the apocryphal books. And sometimes people say, well, why does, why does Catholicism recognize the, the apocryphal books, which are old books written really during the 400 silent years between the Testaments. Why does the Catholic Church have those in their copy of the Scriptures, but the Protestant canon does not include those apocryphal books? Well, it goes back to the Council of Trent in 1546, which was basically a reaction to Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation. And Luther was pointing out how certain practices of the church that they were trying to rip from various portions of the Apocrypha to justify their practice, Luther was showing how it's ultimately unbiblical. And so the, the Catholic Council gets together at Trent and they include by declaration the Apocrypha in their canon. Which is the very thing that oftentimes critics will want to level a charge against the church. Well, you guys just picked the books. No, that's not the case. Catholicism did that in 1546, but that's not how the canon of Scripture came together. Because listen to this. Do you know that the Jewish people never recognized those apocryphal writings as being canonical? You won't find them in the Jewish canon, the Old Testament. You won't find them because they recognize that there's a very real difference between those books as opposed to the 39 books that we do have which bear the, st the stamp of, of prophetic testimony, inspiration, authority. It was something that was recognized as those books were written and given by Israel's prophets. So there's, there's answers here. We just, we just got to just be able to just dig a little bit and think and read history. Okay, so, so the books of the Bible were inspired by God's Spirit and discerned by the people of God. The key word is that word discerned because the books of the Bible, as their inspired authoritative nature was recognized by the church, they had already been in circulation within the church from the time in which they were written so that the church oftentimes, especially in the first several centuries of church history, uh, they would have to have various councils that came together to be able to deal with certain heresies that would emerge. And so when the church got together, it was never to determine which books were legitimate, but it was to simply say, no, this particular book that's being circulated, this particular teaching that's being circulated, it's not in keeping with that body of apostolic witness that we've had since the days of the apostles. It doesn't have the signature of a prophet. It doesn't have the signature of the apostle. Therefore, it's not authoritative for the church. Does that make sense? All right, good. All right, number two, uh, the books of the Bible clearly have their own authority. You know, there's a huge difference between discerning what's already true versus deciding whether it's true by majority vote. <laughs> No, the people of God, in whom the Spirit of God dwells, can discern. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Isn't it an amazing thing that you have a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God if you're a Christian? What is it that's drawing you to this Word like a magnet? Listen, it's your relationship with God. It's the Spirit of God who lives in you. That doesn't mean that 
we always respond to this word the way that we should. But, I'll be honest, a sign that you're a genuine born-again believer will be a love for the Word of God. A love for God's Word. So the books of the Bible clearly have their own authority. And then number three, the books of the Bible were not created by the church. Rather, it's the canon that creates the church. If I were to say that another way, it's not the church that creates the canon. It's the canon that creates the church. What is it that sets us apart? We've been called out from the world, the world by God's Spirit. What is it that sets us apart? It's the, it's the Spirit of God. It's the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so this is really an amazing thing when you think about it, that God has supernaturally revealed His Word, He supernaturally inspired His Word, and He has supernaturally preserved His Word over the centuries of time. So that you can have complete confidence in your Bible. You can have complete and total confidence that this is indeed the word of the living God. Now I've got some quotes here that perhaps will be helpful. One church historian, uh, John Kelly, has said this. Recognition as far as the the New Testament and the Old Testament is concerned. He says, by gradual stages the church in both the East and West arrived at a common mind as to its sacred books. He points out how the first official document which lists the 27 books of the New Testament. It's a letter that was written by a church leader named Athanasius in the year 367. And so Athanasius, in this letter, here's what he says. Uh, It's not tedious to speak of the books of the New Testament. And then he quotes, "Here, here are the books. The four Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Afterwards, the Acts of the Apostles and Epistles, seven books, uh, of James 1, of Peter 2, John 3, Jude 1. In addition, there are 14 epistles of Paul. Now, Athanasius thought that Paul wrote Hebrews. But we get to heaven, we'll figure that one out. Who was it that wrote the book of Hebrews? But then he mentions those that Paul wrote as far as Romans, the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and so on and so forth, all the way to Revelation. The point is, there you have it right there from the 3rd or 4th century, this church leader, Athanasius, who's recognizing these books which were already in circulation among the churches and recognized as the canon, the New Testament canon. And that a remarkable thing, folks, how God has preserved his word, even beyond uh, modern technology and the printing press and all of that, the way that the scribes would meticulously record precious words of scripture, those ancient words. And so that leads me then to this fourth point. The books of the Bible have been revealed and given by God. And I would say also preserved. Preserved. And so this is a remarkable, remarkable truth. All right, now, how were these books discerned? By the church. All right? So, again, I mentioned a moment ago that there were various writings that were false, you know, Gnostic, known as Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas and those kinds of writings. Why weren't those included in the canon? Well, it was because 
Number one, they weren't written by an apostle, even though they bared the signature of a particular, a particular apostle. And most of those Gnostic gospels were written well after the, the, the lives of the apostles anyway. And so the church, oftentimes when it convened at various councils, would say, look, this is not legitimate. This is the truth. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so it was to come together to clarify what the church believed and defend the faith against all attack. You understand that? So here's the criteria often that was used. Let me give you five key questions that over the centuries that the church, various leaders uh, would apply. Very stringent tests that were applied to these letters and books claiming to be authoritative. Number one, was it written by a prophet or an apostle of God? That's test number one. Was it written by a prophet? Was it written by an apostle? All right, so the books of Moses, for example, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses, Moses is a prophet who receives these words from God, and Moses writes these down. And so we know this is authoritative, and it's recognized as such immediately. Okay, so you apply that same standard with the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Here you have in the Old Testament men who were clearly prophets to whom God had revealed his word. They write these words, and these words are preserved. And in the New Testament, it had to bear the stamp of an apostle. Okay, so take, for example, Galatians. We know it was written by the Apostle Paul. Romans, written by the Apostle Paul. As such, it's authoritative for you and for me as the church. Because it's there in these books. We've got the body of apostolic doctrine that's being preserved for us. All right? The second key question is this one. Uh, Was it written by someone with a special connection to a prophet or an apostle who affirmed its authority? Because there are certain books in the New Testament, for example. Uh, Take Mark. Was Mark an apostle? No. Luke. Was Luke an apostle? He writes the Gospel of Luke, writes the book of Acts? No, but is he the associate, the very close associate of an apostle? Yes. Luke is the travel companion with the apostle Paul. Mark, who's also a travel companion, uh, most Bible scholars believe that Mark's Gospel account comes from the apostle Peter himself, Peter's own testimony. So they bear the stamp of apostolic authority when you understand it in that light. A third question, does it tell the truth about God? That is, does it bear witness to the prophetic truth that we know has been revealed by God? Does it contradict? God doesn't contradict himself. God cannot lie. By the way, so important was it to claim to speak for God? There was a very, very strict test applied to anyone claiming to be a prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Listen to this. From God to Moses. Moses to the people. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, God says, a word that I've not commanded him to speak, who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Whew. Pretty strict. 
And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or or come true, that's a word that the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken it presumptuously. So it was a serious thing to claim to speak for God, which, by the way, it's still a serious thing to stand and claim to speak for God. My words are not binding and authoritative on the church. You don't gather together to hear the word of the preacher. No, it's the word of God that we crave. This is our authoritative word for faith and practice. And then a fourth question, uh, does it demonstrate the power of God? Do we see that demonstrated even in the writing and even in the people's lives in a way that sort of attests to the authority of this particular book of the Bible? You know, the word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, according to Hebrews 4 and verse 12. It pierces down deep. It affects life change. And so when God's word was given, when those various books were written or letters from the apostles were written, it was immediately noticed that this bears the stamp of apostolic authority. And as such, it is demonstrating the power of God. And God's preserved it and God's kept it over the centuries. And that's something that you can be confident in. And then number five, was it accepted by the people of God? Not just simply, you know, people in the third or fourth centuries, but even those people to whom it was written. You think about the letter to the Romans, just to use it as an example. You know, they've received this letter from the Apostle Paul. They immediately recognize it as being an apostolic letter. And as such, think about just the rich, profound truth of God concerning the gospel that God has preserved in just the 16 chapters of Romans, which is so important for my faith and your faith in Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Moses um, commands the people in Deuteronomy chapter 31 to take the book of the law and that they were to put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant so that beside the Ark of the Covenant, the testimony God's law to his people, there's there's this book of the law that God himself has given through Moses and it was kept there with the Ark of the Covenant that it would be a witness for the people of God. And folks, it's a reminder to us that we can be confident in the word of God. Yeah, we live in an age of skepticism. And yes, there's no way that we're ever going to argue people into the kingdom of God. And you know something? It's only by faith that we come to understand and know God. And God's determined. He's willed it that way. It's by faith that we understand that the worlds were made by that which is invisible. And it's by faith that we understand that these 66 books that you and I have, known as the Bible, this is an authoritative word from the living God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And aren't you grateful that you have it right there in your hand? Lord, in Jesus' name, God, I realize these are, these are tough subjects. <clears throat> and Lord, for those of us who are your children, God, we gladly accept your word. And that's the work of your spirit in our hearts and in our lives. And though we live in a skeptical age, Lord, may we be, may we be Berean. Lord, may we be uh, confident 
Lord, defending the faith where we can, sharing the faith, and not letting the questions that the world may throw up in our face, letting that discourage us from being active witnesses. Because, Lord, we believe that your word is powerful, and it is indeed sharper than any two-edged sword. It's an amazing thing when just the word of God is spoken, Lord, just the change that is brought about by the work of your spirit in a person's life. And so, Lord, we have that confidence that when we open up this word and we read it, therein we find the testimony of the God of the word. And, Lord, we love you. We need you. The world is a confusing and dark place, and we would be so helpless and left in the dark were it not for the revelation that you've given. Through inspiration and the prophetic writings of both the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New, And so, Lord, we rejoice tonight. We worship you. Bless us as we go from here. Bring us back Sunday. And, uh, Lord, we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. Have a wonderful week.